talking about spiritual gifts, and tonight I'm going to kind of do a little emphasis uh, that I really wasn't sure where to put it in, but I think it'll fit tonight because when we talk about spiritual gifts and we get, begin to talk about some of the different uh, uh, areas of spiritual gifts where there's some differences in the body of Christ, I think it's important to kind of give a little, put it in a little historical context, so uh, we'll take some time to do that. Uh, so uh, everybody get an outline? Don Baker will be happy to bring you one if uh, you didn't get one. He's a good man. All right, talking about the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, um, Paul says in the New King James, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The New Living Translation uh, says a spiritual gift. Manifestation of the Spirit, spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. Now, we spent some time last week just doing a survey over the various passages in regards to spiritual gifts, and, uh, and, and in the weeks ahead, we're going to take a little more deep dive, especially in some of the other areas, uh, but tonight we're going to do a little something different in putting our understanding in uh, a little context here. We talked last week how, um, and this is just an easy way, maybe there's various ways people do this, in dividing the different uh, aspects of the spiritual gift. Now, uh, and the Bible doesn't call it this, but this is just maybe a helpful way. And like I said last week, we covered this. But uh, generally, there's gifts that are more serving gifts. Serving gifts. Those are gifts that have to do with serving, mercy, hospitality, etc. Those are more serving gifts. Uh, speaking gifts, uh, speaking gifts that have to do with exhorting, uh, speaking the word, it might be teaching, uh, prophecy, and again, it depends on how you uh, define prophecy, but prophecy in its very strict definition is speaking forth the word, and uh, we're going to talk about that more specifically in coming weeks. And then there's the sign gifts. That's usually the area that tends to be uh, the most, uh, I don't want to say controversial, but there's the most differences regarding what are often referred to as the sign gifts, tongues, healing, miracles. Again, if you understand prophecy as a speaking forth the word. So generally serving gifts, most everybody in the church is in agreement. Uh, there's no big controversy over the gift of helps. No big differences. Everybody's for helps, right? There's no books. John MacArthur and hadn't written any books, anti-helps, right? Nobody's, nobody's in any disagreement of helps, right? Speaking gifts, well, you know, not so much teaching, but when you get in defining what prophecy is, and again, how you define that, there's definitely some uh, differences. But when you get into the sign gifts, oh no, that's where there's kind of this chasm. There's a divide generally in what I'll call the evangelical church. And when I say evangelical church, we are part of the, it's not a headquarters somewhere, it just means generally a conservative, Bible-believing, um, deno- I don't want to even say denomination, it may have some denominations, uh, but, uh, but it generally is the uh, more conservative side expression. For example, um, Billy Graham is attributed to being one of the, where the term evangelical started to be used. 
back in the early 1900s, they might have used the word fundamentalist. That doesn't have an overly positive uh, terminology, but in the day when it was used, it was. Not necessarily evangelical, that can mean a lot of things today, but we're just using it for our discussion. But in the wider evangelical church, that's typically of churches that believe in the authority of the Bible, uh, take literally the uh, understanding of creation and Genesis and the core doctrines of the person of Christ, the second coming, doesn't mean there's not differences within that, but generally it is a literal approach and believing that the Bible is uh, the Word of God. Now, do we differentiate that? Sometimes I'll use the term uh, historic mainline denominations. For example, uh, the United Methodist Church in the past year has lost um, about 25 to 30 percent of its churches because of its stand in ordaining homosexuals to the clergy. Uh, his, normally, the United Methodist Church, the certain Presbyterian denominations, certain what we call historic mainline denominations, they oftentimes are not necessarily included in that evangelical camp, if you will. And again, evangelical tends to be those that, again, have an expression that is more conservative, their understanding of the Bible uh, and the approach of Scripture. And so generally, that's where the differences are in regards to the sign gifts, okay? So the two divides in the evangelical church, and again, that can be composed of Baptists, Assemblies of God, Reformed. I mean, again, that uh, one of the things, again, that evangelical churches are going to have in common may not necessarily be their views on spiritual gifts, but it's generally going to be an understanding and they believe in the authority of Scripture, that it's the Word of God. They're going to believe in the literalness of the resurrection, the person of Christ as the Son of God, the literal second coming. There may be differences in the timing and when all that will take place, but they take the Bible seriously and take it at face value. And so that's why what I'm kind of trying to distinguish there. But the two divides, and you've got a uh, place uh, in your Bible... In your Bible. I don't think these notes are that great, but uh, <laughs> I'm not that egotistical, all right? But the two divides in the evangelical church is what I would call continuationist or cessationist. Now, those are big words, and the reason, and I'm going to uh, talk about and define those in just a minute, but let me talk about cessationist first. That's the first one on your outline. And again, this is very general, okay? This is very general, but it's important for us to kind of have an overview and give us a little context as we kind of delve into some of the particulars in regards to spiritual gifts. Uh, a cessationist, and it's just the word, cease, that that view is fairly the view that would look at the miracle sign gifts, uh, and that would include uh, tongues, that would include... Uh, special miracles done by through individuals or or not or the apostles. Uh, it might would include gifts of healing. Um, they wouldn't necessarily say, and we'll define that in a minute. So let me not get ahead. But they basically say when the apostles died, the last apostle we know historically that died was who? John. John, John died on the island of Patmos, and he is considered the la the apostle, the last one that died. That when the apostles died, 
the purpose, okay, the purpose of the sign gifts. Now, remember how I distinguish those three categories. So I'm talking about sign gifts. The sign gifts of miracles, tongues, healings, those type of things. The purpose of those gifts, to, the, to a view like a cessationist, I believe they cease, is that those gifts' sole purpose was to authenticate the authority of the apostles as representatives of Jesus. You with me? All right? So when the apostle died, okay, then, and as Scripture, uh, after John passed away and the development of what we would say the canonization of the Bible, I know those are big words, but they're just, they're, they're the technical words that, be, as a Christian, to be familiar with, the development of the Bible, that the purpose of the sign gifts were no longer necessary because we now have the Bible, and that is our sign and authentication. You with me? So that is a predominant view, the cessationist view. People like people that I, you know, have benefited by and some of my heroes in ministry that I've developed my understanding of Scripture, people like John MacArthur is a cessationist. Chuck Swindoll is a cessationist. Uh, David Jeremiah, we are talking about David Jeremiah earlier, uh, he, I don't know, he, I think he, he was pretty much, I think he would fall into that camp, even though he kind of doesn't uh, draw hard lines there. Uh, R.C. Sproul, Sproul, one of my people I you know, benefited greatly by. Uh, Moody Bible Institute, Moody Radio. Moody Radio will not have a charismatic Pentecostal person uh, on as a program. I'm not saying they won't interview somebody with those views, but they won't have... Like, you know, they might would air John MacArthur or Alistair Begg or whatever. They wouldn't have somebody that is predominantly a charismatic, okay? Because that would be a violation of their statement of faith. Uh, Liberty University used to be very strict anti-allowing anybody that came from a Pentecostal charismatic background. You would have to sign a statement that you wouldn't go around speaking in tongues or whatever it was. Uh, before they'd let you in, and then they'd kind of watch you closely. They don't, that's not an issue now. But those divides, traditionally, that was what was seen as a cessationist. And again, just think of the word cease. They cease, they end it. Now, here's a big word that is used more today, and it's the word continuationist. Just think of the word continue. Uh, the reason that that word is helpful is because People uh, today might would consider themselves open to the continuation of the miracle sign gifts, but wouldn't necessarily identify themselves as a Pentecostal or charismatic. Does that make sense? Because there's a lot of baggage with those words and traditions, but they would say, I'm not, I'm not convinced that, those, that there's enough evidence that that view to say that those sign gifts ended with the apostles or that was what even their purpose was. But they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to necessarily throw my hat in the ring with certain groups identify as a Pentecostal or charismatic, but a, a person that just believes in the continuational understanding of what is in the New Testament is continued generationally 
through today. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. All right. So those are the two big divides. And again, there's an oversimplification in that, uh, but just for our purposes. So a cessationist, and I already said this, but here's just a definition, is the view that the miracle uh, gifts, let me read my paper here, is the view that the miracle gifts of tongues and healing have ceased, that the, that the end of the apostolic age brought about a cessation end of the, of mir- of the miracles associated with that age. Most cessationists believe that while God can and still does perform miracles today, the Holy Spirit no longer uses individuals, I don't know who he would use, but no longer uses individuals to perform miraculous signs, all right? But that's just maybe an oversimplification definition, but that's generally. So the continuationist, the person that believes that, no, these gifts are continuing, there's nothing to say that they cease, that's the view is the belief that all the spiritual gifts, all the spiritual gifts, that includes the gifts uh, that are serving gifts, the uh, teaching or the preaching or proclamation gifts, but also the gifts of healings, tongues, miracles. When we talk about tongues, we're going to talk about are they languages? Are they an unknown language? We'll talk about that when we get to that. But including uh, that the gifts of tongues, healings, miracles are still in operation today just as they were in the days of the early church. Nothing is ended. A continuationist, a person that believes that they're continuing, believes that the spiritual gifts have continued unabated, unended, since the day of Pentecost, and that today's church has access to all the spiritual gifts mentioned in the Bible. All right? Do you, does that, you get the two different extremes. Now, there's blends of both, all right? There's all, but just for our purposes... It's important to understand those two different roles. You realize that the latest statistic, I think it was a few years old, for what it's worth, that 700, to show you the growth of those that would, and I'm going to use the term Pentecostal charismatic in a very general way, roughly 700 million Christians identify in one way or the other as Pentecostal or charismatic in the world. That's a lot of people. Um, that in 1970, they're roughly around the world was about 60 million. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty sizable growth. That is one out of three Christians today identify themselves in some form or the other as uh, having an. They would we would say, and using the terms we use, they would be continuationists. They would identify. Uh, maybe they don't go to a Pentecostal church or charismatic, but they would identify with that understanding, okay? So that's a lot of people. And it's based on that, that it's really kind of silly for us to do a study on the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts and not address that and not recognize that that is a massive uh, expression in the body of Christ, whether you agree or disagree, that you just cannot ignore, okay? So we have to uh, talk about it and, and address it and look at it. Now, a lot of times people, when they think, they use the term, they use the term Pentecostal charismatic or Pentecostal charismatic. They use them kind of referring to the same. But historically, there's, that's not necessarily accurate. There's actually historically in the 20th century primarily what I, would, what I call three streams. Okay, three streams. And we're going to look at these 
a little more particularly. The first stream is what is labeled Pentecostal. Okay, and you have a place there in your outline to write that down. Pentecostal. Okay, that's the Pentecostal movement. We'll talk about that. Then you have the charismatic movement. And we're going to talk about why I don't put those two together. Then you have something called the third wave. All right, the third wave. Not new wave, not the music era, the new wave, but the third wave. Okay, and I'll explain that uh, a little more in detail in just a moment. But I want to take you on a little uh, side trip and just doing an overview of a little bit of uh, history of the 20th century and how these three uh, movements developed and what distinguishes them and what holds them together, okay? But they're distinguished as three separate movements. And it's important to have an understanding because theologically there's similarities, but there's also differences in these three streams. I call them streams is a word, but I'm just calling it the Holy Spirit renewal because, again, it's, it's hard to put it all in one little box. And so regardless of maybe your own background, maybe you don't come from a background where any of these terms make any sense, well, this, as a Christian, you kind of need to know a little bit of a main expression in the church and the body of Christ. Um, you may have been raised in a uh, particular denomination like the Assemblies of God or Church of God or, or another Pentecostal, maybe an independent church, and you're not familiar with these terms or even familiar with where your, where your uh, expression or where your particular group fits into that, okay? So we'll look at that and uh, hopefully it'll be helpful as we kind of zero in a little bit and looking in more particularly uh, when we begin to kind of pull apart and get under the hood and talk about some of these sign gifts and their relevancy today. Now, this again is just a timeline. It's not thorough. It's not exact. I actually, two weeks ago, just sat down at a PowerPoint and just kind of did this off the top of my head. I'm not saying that impress you, but I wanted to keep it fairly brief, but to give you a broad understanding so you can distinguish between the various categories, okay? And primarily, it's towards the end of the 19th century. We're in the 21st century, but it's primarily towards the latter middle part of the 19th century and the 20th century that we see these three main renewal groups that were developed. And even though today the terminology may not be used, but it is used in a lot of circles, but it's important to kind of understand the differences uh, in the church. It's kind of like somebody says... <clears throat> um, that I'm bat, or you're a Baptist, or I'm a Baptist, and you're like, well, what kind of Baptist? Are you Southern Baptist? Are you Independent Fundamental Baptist? Are you North American Liberal Baptist? Are you, I mean, there is as many varieties of Baptists as there are among people that identify as a Pentecostal or Charismatic, or when I say that, or at least believe in those. In those giftings. So that's why it's a little hard to sometimes always put everything in a nice little category. Um, I would start the timeline, if you know anything about the early beginnings of Pentecostalism, it oftentimes begins around 1901, but I'm going to go back a little further than that because a lot of times when you, if you were to read anything on church history, you would see that the Pentecostal movement 
began, and we'll look at that next, but began in 1901. But I would suggest that it really uh, actually began before that with a lot of uh, roots that were developed. There's a guy that probably most of you have never heard of by the name of Edward Irving. Edward Irving was a pastor in London. He was a very much a uh, intellect uh, preacher. He was Presbyterian, reformed in his doctrine, and he was a uh, great preacher, uh, had a church well into the thousands, which again in London, this is basically, I'm saying, about 1822. Uh, Edward Irving uh, led his church. He was a member of the Church of Scotland, but Edward Irving led his church in understanding of the fullness of the gifts of the Spirit and uh, began to teach on that and, uh, and to bring some emphasis on the gift of uh, healing and miracles and teaching that that was relevant. Now, that's back in 1822. And the Pentecostal movement oftentimes isn't dated until the 1900s. But Edward Irving, being a member of the Church of Scotland... Uh, that was not a real popular view. And they kicked him out. And he, of course, like any other good Christian, you go and start your own church when you get kicked out, right? Um, now, it's not saying that everything Edward Irving taught, did. You know, there's a lot of people in church history. Whether you're talking about Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley. Look, you're talking about men, you're talking about mere men. We're not idolizing anybody. But these were individuals that, you know, that were significant in church history. So he was a very influential person, and much of the things that he taught found its roots in other movements. And he died uh, at 42 years of age. He didn't live a long time. But he was a very significant person in history, and especially kind of as they... Uh, uh, predating the beginning of the Pentecostal movement at the beginning of the 20th century. One of the other roots that's important to understand is if you come from a Wesleyan, Methodist, uh, holiness background, Nazarene, Salvation Army, they're all part of the Wesleyan. They really, uh, even though they would never, I shouldn't say never, but they would not be ever considered uh, Pentecostal in their theology but they provided a certain theological grounding that led to the Pentecostal movement because one of the things that John Wesley made emphasis of is what oftentimes is referred to, good, bad, or indifferent, as the second work of grace, meaning that there is a second work of grace, there's a second work of, of uh, the ministry of the Spirit that comes after you've come to Christ. And so you can see now... Wesley and the, and the Nazarenes and the Wesleyans, I mean, they would, wouldn't address anything about speaking in tongues. That was something the Pentecostals were noted for. But that emphasis in theology of, a, of, a, of something that was uh, beyond salvation, something that was a, a work of the Spirit that came after salvation that you could pray for and ask for this infilling. Some call it the... Uh, a further work of sanctification, but it was a distinct work of the Holy Spirit that was different than your salvation experience. Okay, everybody with me? So that's what they emphasize. And the reason I'm belaboring that is because that became kind of important because that was the premise 
of the Pentecostal movement is that we could pray, uh, had nothing to do with salvation, but we could pray and ask for the infilling or gifting of the Holy Spirit that was a promise to those after uh, salvation, a promise after salvation. So they kind, of, they kind of provided the Wesleyan movement, Nazarene holiness. They're all part of that Wesleyan line. Uh, even the Salvation Army's roots go back to there. They kind of provided some groundwork that the Pentecostal movement at the turn of the century uh, owed themselves to. Now, when you come to 1901, and I'm kind of put this in real broad categories, from 1901 roughly to 1959, and that's not exact, but just for our purposes, it's helpful. The Pentecostal movement, the emphasis, and again, oversimplification, you've got a place you can write that in. The emphasis in the Pentecostal movement. And remember, I talked about our three streams. I'm talking specifically about the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, their main emphasis uh, in the evidentiary work of the Spirit had to do with what they called, and this is a very specific term, and if you've been raised in Assemblies of God or any uh, uh, Pentecostal denomination, you'll, you should know what these mean, but they, the term initial evidence of tongues is the evidence or the initial evidence that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, don't, they're not talking about salvation, but the proof, if you will, the evidence that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, not the Spirit that's led you to salvation, because they'd say, well, you couldn't come to Christ without the Spirit, but we're talking about that second, uh, and I hate to use this term because it's not accurate, second work of grace that was kind of part of the language of the Wesleyans. They, the Pentecostal movement was very uh, much comfortable with that, and that was what led to the teaching and understanding of a further work of God called the, the Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the way that that was evidenced is the person would speak in tongues or an unknown language. Now, interesting, the early Pentecostals saw tongues as actual languages. Not all of them. And many of them taught that this was going to be the way that the Lord would evangelize the world before the end of Christ because all of a sudden now these individuals were being filled with these known languages that would go out and preach the gospel in these languages that were unlearned in the natural but supernaturally given that they taught that um, one view that was dominant. Uh, the Pentecostal movement often begins or is attributed in history in 1901 with a... Um, a uh, Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. Charles Parham was the leader, and he was away at some uh, conference or something. And when he came back, there were students that were there at the Bible school in Topeka, Kansas, and uh, they were praying for this um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that there was evidence of them speaking in tongues. And Charles Parham uh, later experienced that, uh, he wrote. And that was oftentimes is where the beginning... Okay, there's no home office. In, it's just that when we trace it back in America, Topeka, Kansas, the, this experience of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of tongues it is often the beginning or birthing of the Pentecostal movement 
begins roughly around 1901, Charles Parham was leader. I mentioned several denominations, Church of God, Cleveland, uh, Tennessee is the Pentecostal denomination. Uh, Church of God in Anderson is definitely not Pentecostal. You know, I remember one time somebody said, what, where, what church you go to? And they go, Church of God. And they're like, well, yeah, don't we all? I mean, uh, but this is very specific denomination. Assemblies of God trace their roots back to the Pentecostal outpouring there. Interesting, the Assemblies of God, their roots were really a work of the Holy Spirit and their teaching of Pentecost that came through the, the Assemblies of God, their roots church-wise are structured through Baptists and not Wesleyans. So the Assemblies of God would not identify with those Wesleyans and the Methodists. The Assemblies of God, their roots in that early part of the 20th century were more Baptists who received this Pentecostal outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And once that happened, many of them were kicked out of their denominations. And thus, what do you do? You go start a new denomination, right? So that's the beginning of the roots. Azusa Street Revival. Have any of you ever heard of the Azusa Street Revival in Los Angeles? A one-eyed black man in 1906 began to pray, and there was this tremendous revival, as they identified it, outpouring of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of tongues and miracles and things that were going on, and people came from all over the country, around the world, and... Uh, and, of course, there were those who greatly opposed it because you can imagine the racial sentiments, one, in 1906, that this cult in Los Angeles being led by a black man. I mean, the whole thing was... But, but many church movements today trace their lineage or their revival or their church planting back to Azusa Street. And I forget how long it, it went on there, but it was just a, a little nondescript uh, building where people came from all over the world to experience this revival that was going on, okay? Uh, world missions certainly was an emphasis. Um, and again, I'm leaving a lot out, but I've kind of included that something that was very big in the late 40s and 50s was referred to as the healing movement. And Oral Roberts, there were many others, but Oral Roberts is probably, even though he kind of transitioned into... The 60s, with the founding of the university, Oral Roberts is probably the biggest name of the healing evangelist revivals that were very, very big in the 40s, late 40s and 50s. But all of that, in a very overly simplistic way, came through the Pentecostal movement. All right. So I want you to kind of put that in one category, and we're going to turn the page and talk about the charismatic movement. And that's a distinct movement, if you will, that predominantly dates from around 1960 to the 80s, okay, early 80s. Again, these are my dates, they're not exact. The emphasis of the charismatic, charis, charis means grace, gift, grace, the charismatic movement, the emphasis similar to Pentecostal, but their language was talking about a baptism or a fullness of the Spirit, okay? It's very almost identical to what the Pentecostals did, but a different language and emphasis, not so much evidentiary, even though they would say that tongues is evidence, but they use language to talk more about the baptism 
or fullness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, around 1960, an Episcopalian minister in Van Nuys, California, uh, received what he characterized as the fullness of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And he was an Episcopalian. No Pentecostal background whatsoever. And he and his wife began to teach and lead this Episcopal church. Remember I made the distinction between mainline denominations and evangelical? The charismatic movement, I'll talk about this in a minute, was really a movement of the spiritual revival in your mainline denominations. Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, Quaker, you name it. Episcopalians or Anglicans, we've called in England. But Dennis and Rita Bennett, I think their book, uh, which was again one of those early books on the charismatic renewal experience, I think it was called Nine O'Clock in the Morning. It was a testimony book. And if you, any of you that were a part of that, you know that there were a lot of testimony paperback books. People were writing about their experience of the baptism and fullness of the Holy Spirit. But those are uh, names that are important to the movement. Again, it was a renewal movement in mainline denominations. Not necessarily Baptist, but, but again, you're Methodist, Episcopalian, and I would even also say Roman Catholic. That was a big thing. Uh, in fact, uh, in 1977, one of the high points of this charismatic remo- uh, renewal movement was in Kansas City, where over 50,000 people gathered at one of the stadiums there, and it was composed of people from all these denominations, including Roman Catholics, that were coming in their understanding of this fullness of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was crossing these traditional denominational lines, okay? Now, what's interesting is, remember the Pentecostals we talked about earlier? They weren't real hip on this charismatic movement. In fact, many of them, I know the Church of God in particular, and uh, I think lesser of the assemblies, but some of the other Pentecostal denominations were adamantly opposed to what would be called the charismatic movement. You think, wait a minute, they're doing the same thing that their forefathers did in the beginning. You know what, you know what one of their big hang-ups was? was all these Catholics claiming to be full of the Holy Spirit. They just couldn't because the traditional beginning of Pentecostals were were adamantly anti-Roman Catholic, taught that the Pope was the Antichrist, and the whole idea that these Catholics could claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit, which a Pentecostal would say that if they spoke in tongues, that was evidence of the right, of the Spirit, and they're making claim of being filled with the Spirit, and the Pentecostal, and again, I'm being very general, but the denominations were not real keen on these crazy charismatics. You know, they said, look, we got to keep this Pentecostal thing in order, you know, and they thought the charismatics were flaky and weird, and, and they were and are sometimes, right? But nevertheless, they really resisted that. People like Pat Robertson, the Christian Broadcasting Network, 700 Club, uh, the beginning of Christian television, 
Some of you won't even know who these names are. The uh, Trinity Broadcasting, PTL, CBN, all those things came out of the charismatic movement. Um, some of you may be familiar with the name, uh, uh, a woman evangelist that had a very powerful healing ministry, Catherine Coleman, was a part of that. The Word of Faith movement, what is labeled as the Word of Faith movement, people like Kenneth Hagin and Kenneth Copeland, uh, kind of on another spectrum, Jack Hayford, who Jack Hayford would identify as a, as a Pentecostal. How many of you have ever heard of the Four Square Church? It's very big in the West Coast. Jack Hayford's background, but Jack Hayford kind of crossed those lines and was certainly a massive leader uh, in the charismatic renewal of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The really beginnings of contemporary Christian music. If you listen to Joy FM, its roots all go back to this period. Now, Teresa's smiling. I know there was a time when I had cassettes of second chapter of Acts, and, all, and I literally could keep them in one little space on my dress, because that's about it. Now, it's like everybody and their neighbors got a song. You know, you can't keep up, but in the beginning, that was all new. And you know where that was begun? If you saw the movie, The Jesus Revolution, Chuck Smith, the founder of what became known and still is today of the Calvary Chapel, uh, Calvary Chapel movement. Uh, Evie, I know you all went to a Calvary Chapel uh, was it in Melbourne, or where was it? Melbourne. Uh, how many of you saw Jesus Revolution, that movie, all right? Well, all of that is identified and part of this charismatic renewal that was going on. And again, there's as many varieties of that, but it was just part of the environment that was happening. You had, you know, the, the, uh, the hippie movement. That really dates us, doesn't it? And, uh, but that Jesus Revolution and Calvary Chapel and Christian music, contemporary Christian music, that were these people coming to Christ and playing music and writing music that was contemporaneous to their culture, that was new, as you saw in the movie. If you saw the movie, you saw that that was, you know, you know God can't be glorified unless we're singing from a hymnal, you know, or, or uh, whatever. And so that was all birthed in that period of time. Global missions. Again, one of the things you see, whether it was the Pentecostal or charismatic missions, was always emphasized in some greater way. Prayer movements were emphasized. Again, it didn't mean that there was no prayer movements before then. It's just uh, small house groups, small uh, home groups, house groups. Um, that took on a greater emphasis during this period of time. Uh, non-denominational church growth. So as some of these churches and pastors were experiencing this renewal of the Holy Spirit as they understood it, a lot of times their denominations didn't like it and either kicked them out or forced them out. So many of them went and started either their own church or an independent church that wasn't tied necessarily to a denomination. Uh, how many of you are familiar with... Um, uh, Christian Retreat Center down in Sarasota, Florida. It's a big Christian retreat center. Uh, Gerald Durstein uh, was a leader in the charismatic movement. His background of coming into the fullness of the Holy Spirit, Gerald Durstein was a Mennonite. And he was a leader of the charismatic renewal in the Mennonite church. Um, Larry Christensen. Uh, was a um, prominent charismatic leader, uh, wrote a lot of books on the family. He was Lutheran, 
came out of a Lutheran background. So again, the charismatic movement, in a very generalized way, was an emphasis of this baptism, this fullness of the Spirit that was being experienced beyond the traditional Pentecostal denominations. All right, Is everybody kind of keeping those categories separate there? Now again, we're talking about a, a, a renewal movement, but it's having different emphases in different groups in the body of Christ. So that's why we distinguish in saying a person who might identify as a charismatic may not identify themselves as a Pentecostal. Because a charismatic might say, well, tongues isn't necessarily necessary as a sign gift. They would say it probably is, but they would not put the emphasis upon it like a traditional Pentecostal who might would come out of a traditional Pentecostal background. So that's why there's some differences there, all right? Now there was this other group that's probably the least familiar, but we're probably more beneficiaries of it than any other. And that is this group, and there's really no label for it like charismatic. Uh, oh, I mentioned, sorry, one more point there. Kind of the culmination was a uh, Washington for Jesus that was multi-denominational, but the leaders of this Washington for Jesus on April 29, 1980, over one million Christians gathered for this massive prayer gathering in Washington, D.C. Now, do you know what was going on in April of 1980? Jimmy Carter was president. The hostages were being held in Tehran. The United States was at a very critical period of time. And one million believers, composing of charismatics, non-charismatics, everybody from D. James Kennedy in Fort Lauderdale to James Dobson to Pat Robertson to Bill Bright, Campus Crusade. Bill Bright would not in any way agree with the charismatic Pentecostal view, but he was able to relate because he recognized them as part of the body of Christ, and God used his leadership. Some of you may not be familiar with this name that was very prominent in the charismatic movement by the name of Demas Shikarian. How many of you ever heard of the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International? Big, 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 big in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I remember my dad was a part of that. But again, what that was, that was reaching business people in having these meetings and chapters all over the country, and they would get together and have speakers come to them, and these speakers would give testimonies about their faith in Christ, about the fullness or baptism of the Holy Spirit, and people that would never darken the church would come to these meetings, these, these dinners or luncheons, and all of a sudden they would hear these testimonies, and they would, you know, they may have come from their Presbyterian church or their Methodist church or whatever, but they would come to this neutral gathering of these businessmen that had all these chapters all over the world, and they would hear somebody talking about how they were just this mediocre believer and had no joy, and how they came into this fullness of the Spirit and no Christ, and now they... Now they want to tell others about Jesus, and they're hearing this testimony, and they're like, hey, I want, to, I want, I want that. I, want, I don't know what that is, but I want that. This full gospel businessman's fellowship was huge, huge. Uh, I think there was a female counterpart. It wasn't near as big. How many of you were familiar with uh, Women's Aglow? Well, that was kind of a female counterpart, but not quite the same. All right? So that's the charismatic movement. But remember, I have roughly from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But there's this other group 
that was extremely influential and probably uh, is still influential more uh, to me and, and uh, today. And, and there's really not a, a name for it, but the most common term that you'll see in books and different writers is they refer to it as the third wave, meaning the Pentecostal was what? The first wave. The charismatic was the second wave. And this was the third wave. Didn't have any real good terminology, but its emphasis was very similar to the charismatic movement, but their emphasis was trying to create a balance of theology. And this term, it didn't mean they invented it, but a balance between the word and spirit. Now, this was a movement that was predominantly uh, among what we, I was trying to talk, explain what evangelicals were. I would say those would be the conservative, Bible-believing churches. Not your mainline denominations, but these would be the conservative, Bible-believing, maybe they're part of a denomination, Southern Baptist, um, maybe you're conservative, Reformed, Presbyterian. They were all affected by this third wave. And the one person that was probably the most prominent um, I say leader. I mean, it's not like he was elected to an office, and uh, you know. But but the influencer that God used by, was by uh, a man by the name of John Wimber. How many of you ever heard of John Wimber? John Wimber was a member before he came to Christ of the grant, the group, the Righteous Brothers. Now, some of you generationally will know what that is. And uh, his testimony is, is, I know Dan and Betty, um, John Wimber was the founder of what became the Vineyard Church Movement. How many of you have heard of Vineyard Churches? John Wimber. By the way, interestingly, John Wimber, when he came to faith in Christ, he was a member, uh, he was in California, and he and his, his wife came to faith in Christ, and uh, he was just on drugs and part of the rock and roll, this, you know, the Righteous Brothers band and group, and uh, life was just empty, and he uh, went and, and bought a, a Bible at a used bookstore and began to read it, and his wife was praying for him, and, um, uh, and then he started going to the church that she was going to, and she went to a church called, among the, it's called the Friends Denomination, uh, which is very similar in their roots to the Quakers, very conservative um, a group of Bible believers. I think Richard Nixon was a member of the, the Friends denomination. That was just the name of it. But very big uh, in different parts of the country, but its roots go back to the Quakers and whatnot. And uh, so he began to attend church. And as he read more about the New Testament and the Bible, one of his famous testimonies, I'll paraphrase, was when he went to the pastor one day, and he's reading the New Testament, and he went to the pastor one day and said, Hey, um, when do we start doing the stuff? And the pastor's like, what are you talking about? You know, the stuff. The stuff I'm reading in the Gospels and Acts. And when do we get to do that? When do we see that? The pastor was like, I don't know. <laughs> you know? Um, but John Wimber, God used him in a tremendous way. Kind of fast forward, a lot of things happened. But John Wimber was invited by a guy named Peter Wagner to teach a seminary-level course at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. And John Wimber uh, taught a course that was a seminary... Now, Fuller Seminary, 
would have been, not so much now, they've kind of gone off the rails in liberalism, but back in that day of the, of the 50s and 60s, 70s, and 80s, Fuller Seminary was one of the preeminent evangelical seminaries in the world, okay? And so John Wimber was teaching there, and he developed a seminary-level course on signs and wonders. And basically, it was kind of like a clinical approach, biblically, to studying signs and wonders from the New Testament, the book of Acts, and studying it on kind of a level, uh, not just an intellectual level, but studying it more in an in a objective, seminary-level course. And from that, as he began to teach that, they began to say, well, hey, let's practice some of this. Let's, as they began to teach and learn about praying, let's say for somebody for healing, they said, well, let's, let's, let's try it out, <laughs> right? And so John Wimber was, was a tremendous uh, speaker. You can go on YouTube and see he's with the Lord now. He died in 97. But again, the, uh, John Wimber, again, among many others, but this was a spiritual renewal that was among what I would call more of the conservative evangelical influence. Not your is different than the charismatics, because the third wave emphasis, John Wimber would say, you know, we appreciate our Pentecostal friends and our charismatic friends, but we're not convinced they got everything right. We're not convinced that some of the things they bore down and emphasized was correct. What they sought to do was to say, can we have a better balance between biblical theology that isn't just off the rails with I had a dream and here's my vision, but is sound biblical teaching but doesn't throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit or the sign gifts. All right, That was maybe, again, an oversimplification there. Um, this was a movement that, again, all of these, but especially the charismatic movement in the vineyard churches, uh, worship music was a big emphasis, okay? And so vineyard worship music um, is big. I mean, you know, was, uh, again, very, still is. Um, people like names that some of these may not mean anything to you, but Wayne Grudem, uh, R.T. Kendall, we've shown some of his stuff. D.A. Carson, Jack Deere, we'll talk about him in a minute, John Piper, Sam Storms. These are all people that would in no way use the label Pentecostal or Charismatic. In fact, Wayne Grudem, R.T., most of these, maybe with the exception of Jack Deere, but I'm not even sure, they would identify themselves more as Reformed theologians or, and teachers, and they're all theologians, um, but they would all embrace an understanding. They would be called Continuationists. Now, remember what continuationists are? They don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit ceased. They believe that there's ample biblical evidence that those things are to be continued in some fashion in the church today. Interestingly about John Wimber is that John Wimber, uh, when he came, uh, he became part of the early beginnings of the Calvary Chapel movement of Chuck Smith. But in Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith... His background was Pentecostal. And if you remember a little nuances in the movie, he really was kind of reacting against a lot of the legalisms and some of the practice of the Pentecostal where he came out of. And so he was wanting to kind of have a different approach. He wasn't 
going to throw out the belief and the role of the Spirit in the life of the believer, but he just didn't embrace some of those traditions of the Pentecostal movement that he was a part of and grew up in. And so John Wimber became a part of the Calvary Chapel movement, but John Wimber wanted to kind of go further than Chuck Smith wanted to go as far as in regards to the role of the gifts of the Spirit in relationship to prophecy, praying for the sick. Chuck Smith was much more, and even your Calvary chapels, most of them today, they believe all the things doctrinally, but they're going to be a lot more conservative in the practice of some of these spiritual gifts than vineyards that John Wimber wanted to do. John Wimber were like, hey, come on, let's, you know, let's move this baby down further, right? And Chuck Smith was like, no, a little more cautious. But I understand that because Chuck Smith came out of that Pentecostal movement where there was a lot of things and excesses, and he was a little bit more, you know, let's, let's not get crazy, right? And not that John Wimber wanted to get crazy, but John Wimber was just, you know, come on, let's, you know, let's move forward. So that's where the Vineyard movement really came out of the Calvary Chapel movement, all right? Um, you saw in the third wave, you saw real... Uh, scholarly theology began to, develop, began to be developed in this movement that was on par with anything anybody else was doing. These would be people, I mentioned like Wayne Grudem, uh, D.A. Carson, Jack Deere, Sam Storm, some of these others, uh, Craig Keener. In other words, these would be people that would, would have no back seat to any of the theological scholars in the non-Pentecostal charismatic world. But they were coming at Scripture and saying, you know, I don't think y'all got it right here. And they would give the theological weight to supporting the continuationist view of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. All right, um, There was a broader acceptance of spiritual gifts among people that would be identified as evangelicals. Uh, and again, the biggest denomination that would be evangelical would be the Southern Baptists. And there's a lot of different, not that the Southern Baptists would identify with it, but a lot of people from that conservative, Bible-believing uh, view became uh, more accepting. One of the things, good, bad, and different in the third wave is there began to be an emphasis upon a continuationist view of apostles and prophets. Not, not saying... There are men and women or men that are equal to John and Paul or anything like that. But they would say, no, there still is, as an apostle, uh, was that who established churches and planted churches and had that gifting and oversight. They believed, again, if all the gifts are continuing, then there's no reason to think that the apostolic gift or even the prophetic gift, and we'll dig down and talk about that, but there was a big emphasis more in that role. And a lot of your Pentecostals, Back in the first wave, they didn't like that. All right, so that's why there's similarities, but there's differences. Okay, they didn't like that. They said that's nuts. Um, healing ministry wasn't that there was healing. Wasn't that the others didn't emphasize healing ministry, but one of the things that you saw more of an emphasis, and John Wimber was very strong into this, is getting away from this healing ministry being built around some dynamic personality that holds a big stadium and uh, 
you know, throws the coat over him and they all fall down. He just said, look, if God has gifted the church to pray for one another, everybody can do this. One of the phrases John Wimber, uh, and he's just a big old guy, but he was a very uh, joyful person. He said the thing when you read the New Testament, he said everybody gets to play. There's no special class. There's various gifts, but there's no special class. In other words, you can pray just as a faith. You're a spirit-filled, born-again believer. You can pray for a person just as effectively as somebody that's gone to seminary and been ordained as a pastor. In other words, because that was, when you see the New Testament, what was the promise in Acts chapter 2? Joel, the prophecy that Peter said was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2, said, I will pour my spirit upon some flesh. Is that what it says? No, I'll pour my spirit upon all flesh. Meaning that the role of the spirit now is going to be poured out among men, women, and everyone. It was going to be available, not just like in the Old Testament, where it was just for a few, for special situations. Now, the Holy Spirit now was going to be poured out in a much greater dynamic way. So... John Wimber, among others, put great emphasis in saying, no, these are ministries in the church that if we believe that God has gifted individual people within the church, that these things are to be continued, then there's no reason why they can't be people who pray for one another and are involved in these type of ministries. Um, And we'll talk probably more about that later. Uh, Prayer ministry was emphasized. Um, An emphasis upon what sometimes is called deliverance ministry, spiritual warfare, uh, some good, bad, some excesses, those type of things. But an emphasis, how many of you you may have heard of Neil Anderson? Uh, You may have heard of Neil Anderson. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others. But again, they would identify with more of the spiritual renewal that was identified in this third wave. And they would recognize that because they said, look, we recognize that the Bible has a balance between the Word and the Spirit. We want to be balanced. We don't want to just be a one-winged plane. We want to fly, we want to fly with both wings, right? And we want to, we want to be everything uh, that God has for us today. But the Scripture, the emphasis among uh, Wimber, was making sure, because the Bible is what helps keep you grounded and helps keep you balanced. And some of the... You know, like any church movement, I don't care whether you go back to the, any church history or movement, and this has always been my complaint, as much as I, I, I enjoy him and benefited, this has always been for years my complaint against MacArthur when he wrote about charismatics. He would pick the most extreme crazies to make an example as though that is representative of everybody. Listen, I can tell you about some crazy fundamental Baptists that are almost cult-like, that I wouldn't want to say everybody that's a Baptist is like that guy, right? You can find nuts everywhere, right? You're looking at one, but you can find them everywhere. And so I wanted to give you, I had more I want to do, and I'll pick that up next week, but I wanted to give you that as a, maybe it was like you felt like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, but I wanted to give you that a little bit of a broad view to kind of see why this is more of an emphasis and why we need to address this and make sure we're trying to put it in a biblical context. Because interesting, if you picked up a systematic theology book, say, 
dated prior to 19, let's say 60, maybe 70, but 60 for sure. Going back to the reformers back, you will find almost zero, zero, not in everybody, but you would find almost zero emphasis or teaching or study on anything relating to spiritual gifts. Because early back in the day, and I'll just kind of save this for later, the tradition in seeing that all of these gifts died off of the apostles may shock you, but actually that was probably the biggest proponent of that was John Calvin. Now, why, why was that an emphasis? Because remember, back in Calvin's day, the signs of the apostles were being used by the corrupt Roman Catholic Church to identify that the Catholic Church had the signs of the apostles and that they were the true authority in the world today. So when John Calvin wrote against these signs of the apostles, he wasn't addressing anything that we think of today. He was addressing the corruption. And I mean, and again, it's not a slam. Roman Catholics will tell you there was corrupt periods. But this was a corrupt period in which the Catholic Church was attributing special signs and wonders to relics and bones of the martyrs and, and, you know, the bone of Thomas brought healing and all this. So what he wrote of, of, of emphasizing the cessation of these signs and gifts was really in context an understanding that the Roman Catholic Church was using it to perpetuate that they were the final authority upon the earth and that they had the, the gifts of the Spirit and the Apostles and it had really nothing that we tend to want to emphasize today. But unfortunately, among the reform view, the reformers, a very anti-view of any type of giftings of the Spirit because there was such emphasis upon the authority and finality of the Bible. Remember, Roman Catholics believe in two traditions and one even over Scripture. They believe in the tradition of the church the traditions of the, the popes and the creeds and those things, really, they say they give the authority to the Bible. Protestants believe that the Bible gives us authority. The church doesn't give the Bible authority. That's the Catholic view. So when you understand why did they make an emphasis in saying these things need to cease, kind of put it in context with what they were fighting against back in the 15th, 16th centuries was much different than today, all right? And so, but the reformers primarily were the ones that perpetuated the idea that these type of things ended with the apostles because, you know, every movement, and I'll close with this, every movement usually, in order to correct an extreme, what happens with any movement, they end up going to another extreme. So because there was such false teaching upon the authority of the word of God coming through the Pope and the church, etc., etc., they went to another extreme and said that the only way God speaks today is through this closed book. Okay? Because they were countering that falsehood. Now, I would not dispute that this is the final authority of God. But by doing that, they de-emphasize certain things because of 
the risks and their overemphasis upon things. And so uh, we'll dig more into that. I had more I wanted to uh, talk about tonight. I want to expose you to um, show a short video of somebody I want to introduce to you, but we'll do that next week, okay?